Welcome to Talking Feds, Women at the Table, a podcast that brings to the table legal and policy professionals for a lively and intellectual discussion. I'm Melissa Murray, the Stokes Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law. And I'm Juliette Kayyem, Faculty Chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and former Assistant Secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. And I'm Ann Milgram, professor of practice and distinguished scholar at NYU School of Law and former New Jersey Attorney General. This has been a really exciting week of history-making events. We had a peaceful presidential transition, and we watched as the first woman and woman of color took the oath of office as vice president. And our guests today are no strangers to chronicling trailblazing women. Um, We are going to be joined today by Julie Cohen and Betsy West, the Oscar-nominated filmmakers who brought us RBG. This terrific duo just came back from Sundance, where they premiered their new documentary, My Name is Polly Murray, to incredible acclaim and well-deserved. The film is just fantastic. So we are going to spend some time with them later in the show talking about the film and Polly Murray, perhaps the most important civil rights figure that you have never heard of. But before we get to that conversation, maybe we could gab a little bit about the last couple of weeks, the inauguration and the general shift to the Biden administration. So, ladies, what do you think? Oh, I love it. I think this ability to look away is so fantastic because you know your government's qualified people, people who've been there before, people who know what they're doing. But Trump is still around. And I think in our minds and the atmosphere in his capacity to have a hold on this party. And so it does feel like the ex moved in next door, like it's just not quite sure sort of what his next step is. And that I still find stressful, just given what happened on the Capitol with the insurrection, the continuing investigation, his role in it, an impeachment coming up. So, you know, there's sort of parallel storylines of which part of you feels like I can hand off the tension to people who are working really hard to make government work again. But in the back of my head, something's going on that hasn't gone away yet. And that that I find still part of the atmosphere. The whole feeling of the Joe Biden administration is just different. And from daily press briefings to seeing the entire COVID-19 team out there with doctors and experts and just there's a lot of information coming out and it just feels it feels different and and it feels reliable to me. And masks. Yeah. And masks. Everyone is wearing a mask. So there are some real differences that I didn't know how much I would feel them, but I I do feel them. And I I feel government is being run by experts and led by experts. And that's not to say that we won't disagree at times with decisions that they make, but it, it feels back to sort of some of the traditions and norms. And in the middle of a global pandemic and an economic crisis, it feels like we finally have steady leadership and we can sort of count on knowing what we'll hear tomorrow and what's happening. And the administration is building towards more vaccinations. It is a feeling of relief of sorts. I would also, though, echo what Juliet said, because I had a moment this week where I read the trial brief filed by Trump's lawyers for the Senate trial. And there is this sentence in there, quote, insufficient evidence exists upon which a reasonable jurist could conclude that the 45th president's statements were accurate or not. And he therefore denies they were false basically saying to double down on the big lie as part of his defense and saying the election was a fraud and that the president wants to walk in to the trial and basically argue that the things he said weren't lies. It's sort of like just when you felt like you had one foot 
moving out of that door. It was a reminder to me that he still holds a lot of power to make impeachment and to make other things about his narrative and this very divisive and just deeply problematic way that he's approached governing. And so he's not there, but there's still a way in which it's it's not done. It's still his party. Yeah. It's still his party. I, I just don't get the Republican strategy, except if you say what you just said, Melissa, which is it is his party, because this is the moment when if the Republican Party were to redefine itself, it could. And they're not taking it. They're supporting the crazy congresswoman. They're angrier at Liz Cheney than anyone else, it seems. The leadership flies down to go see Trump in Florida. If you're not going to take advantage of this moment, which is 60 or 70 percent of the American public is behind Biden. And so this is the moment in which you move against Trump. They're not going to take it. And that I think I think I always knew that. But I just think it's just so obvious now. I think we'll definitely see that as the impeachment trial begins on February 9th. And what struck me about the briefs that were filed was not just the doubling down on the big lie, but the sort of front and center nature of this jurisdictional question of whether the Senate can even have an impeachment trial for a former president. And I think most constitutional scholars pretty much agree that the idea that the framers would have allowed a president to escape or avoid accountability for misconduct just because his term of office was coming to an end, like sort of a get out of jail free card for January, is just absurd. But it's just being repeated and it's being put out there. And I think it's being done to provide a sort of neutral way. It's a safe harbor for them. It's a safe harbor for the Republicans who don't want to have to vote on impeachment on the merits because they would be forced. I agree completely, having read just a number of scholars, and it, it feels to me overwhelmingly that that scholars really do believe that this can happen. Also, the Senate voted on this last week. And so there's this sort of first round of, okay, what do constitutional scholars, what does the Constitution say? Then there's the second piece, which is the trial of impeachment is really about the Senate and what the Senate says. The Senate gets to set its rules, right? And so it's not to say a court couldn't try to interject itself, but it feels to me like it'd be very hard. It would be very hard. So it feels to me like if this were a real court, it'd be like asked and answered, move on, and you wouldn't be able to argue it in a court of law. But because it's not a real court, because it's a Senate trial, they're setting it up to make this process and procedure argument like one of the ways that the members can essentially avoid judging this on the merits. And it's just, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to watch that happening and to sort of see what's happening. And, you know, I'm much more comfortable in a courtroom. And so I really, I find myself wishing there was a real judge. <laughs> Like, no. We're not going to talk about that. Like, well, sit down. Does that make both of you, knowing how this is likely to unfold, more supportive of the Tim Kaine censure argument that just get these MFers on the record on the pure Trump is a domestic terrorist or not question? And because we're not going to win the other one. I, I'll admit to you, I was against it when I first heard it. And now I'm like, you know what? They're not moving. The party's not changing. The only thing that's going to change is you vote these um, efforts out, uh, the QAnons, the people that support. I mean, that's supporting domestic terrorism is what they did. This wasn't a joke. This is what the president wanted. We know it was what the president wanted, was to overturn the election. They've managed to delete race from all aspects of this, the noose and the Confederate flags, that this was the erasing of black and minority votes. They've erased that from the narrative that this is just Trump was upset. Yeah, they've also erased the misogyny. I mean, don't forget all of the people in the Capitol 
looking for Nancy Pelosi, calling her the B word. AOC, same. This is also a story about misogyny as much as it is about race and ethnicity. So I don't, I think they censured Clinton, I recall. This was, God, how many impeachments back do we have to go for all of this? And I don't know that it was super consequential. Again, I think this president has really been sort of like Teflon, like nothing really sticks. And I'm not confident that censure would work in this particular form either. But it does seem that in order to move forward, there should be some kind of accountability. And it just doesn't seem likely that you're going to get that from the impeachment trial. So maybe censure would be a second best alternative. I come at this from the sort of criminal prosecution training and viewpoint, which is that sometimes you bring hard cases that you lose and you bring them because you think it's righteous and you're doing the right thing. And to edit yourself is a mistake, right? To basically say, well, I may not win, so I shouldn't bring something that I believe someone has committed a crime or a high crime and misdemeanor. Also, I sort of err on the side against having done the censor thing. And part of it also is that my read on Donald Trump is that he's a bully and he's been a bully and he's governed and acted like a bully. And the bully, when you give them half your lunch and you think they're not going to eat the other half, they always eat the other half. And so it's like you give them censor or you sort of try to negotiate for censor. There's no guarantee you would have gotten it. And so I sort of feel like, look, you can't rely on people always to do the right thing. And they have to make their decision before they have to swear an oath as jurors. You know, if anything, in some ways, it's pointed out to me just how political the impeachment trial process is, right? And was created in that way by the founders. And so maybe they believed that there would be this appeal to better angels, but it is a really fascinating thing to see it sort of play out as brazenly political as I think it's it's going to be. Can we talk about something a little more uplifting? Yeah, we're going to go all the way back in the vault for this. We never got to talk about inauguration together. And I was actually stunned by how much fun the inauguration actually wound up being because I thought it was just going to be sort of, I don't know, kind of a sad second best affair in the middle of a pandemic. But it actually was incredibly joyous and sort of ebullient in its joy. And I welcomed it. I really had a good time that day, more better, a better time than I expected. I'd actually planned to work all day and I didn't, I didn't do a thing from like 11 o'clock <laughs> or 1130 in the morning on. I, I was glued to the TV and it was, it was exciting and it was affirming of our government and democracy. And it was also just really beautifully and well executed, yeah. I think. And I mean, I still think about the Amanda Gorman poem was that was just amazing. Like there were just so many instances of feeling just really excited and proud to be an American and to watch that transfer of power. So many women. Yeah. So many women. But also, can we discuss the concert? Because that was also awesome. Oh, with the fireworks. Yeah. But why does Tom Hanks not have a coat? That was crazy. (laughs) Can anyone explain? My favorite part was the complete erasing of Donald Trump in the former president's club. So you had Bush, Clinton, and Obama sort of standing there as like the elders ready to help Biden should he need it kind of thing. And no discussion, as there should not have been, of Donald Trump and no discussion of of even the last four years. It was like it sort of skipped over. Now, obviously, the redemption of George Bush in light of Donald Trump is something to be maybe a little bit more skeptical of. Yeah. And inauguration is a day where you think about former presidents, right? And it it felt actually really, I thought, 
good for the country to see the three of them together talking about the need to unify and move forward and to work together. But you're right. And I read something about this today, but I've actually noticed that the Biden administration also has not really said Trump. Yeah. Right. There, there is a there's a concerted effort to sort of take him out of the picture because like saying Voldemort. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. He must not be named. It's an effort. Well, thank God he's not on Twitter because then then reporters are so bad. They would be asking him Biden people every day, like, what did you think of that tweet? So you'd have to spend 10 minutes saying, I didn't actually think of that tweet. And they'll be like, how could you actually not think of that tweet? Trump is tweeting that as if the tweet itself had value. The only reason why the tweets had value is because they demanded a reaction. And now I think people realize like, you know what? We could have just been ignoring them all along. But it is nice not to have that noise. Honestly, I just I don't think about Biden every day. I think that's the way it should be with a president. To me, it just feels like that moment where my children were old enough to kind of be left on their own and didn't require constant supervision, like the difference between having a toddler and having like a second grader that you could park in front of a television for a few minutes and go take a shower. You just don't have to be always watching. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I have less of that anxiety when I pick up my phone in the morning and think like something's going to change my day. It's sort of a a physical feeling more than I expected. It's a feeling of relief. And I have always been sort of interested in government, followed government, worked in government. But this is the first time I can really remember that feeling of just concern for the future of our country in a profound way that feels like we've moved beyond But I will caution and say this. I do think that we've moved beyond it to a certain extent, but it would be a mistake both to turn the page on Trump's accountability and also it'd be a mistake to turn the page on thinking that the presidency cannot be exploited again in the same way that Donald Trump has exploited it or worse. And so I sort of feel like there's a lot of institutional reform stuff that even though I'd like to look beyond it, I sort of feel like we need to be focused on. So basically, we are all breathing a sigh of relief, but we are keeping one eye open because anything could happen. But we're in a good place. And now we are headed to the main event. We are joined by Julie Cohen and Betsy West. Julie and Betsy are the Oscar-nominated directors of RBG, a documentary about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And they have teamed up again on a new documentary, My Name is Polly Murray. Just for some background, Polly Murray, no relation, has long been a hero of mine. But I confess, I learned about her in a rather roundabout way when I was doing research on legal feminism in the 1960s and 1970s. As I dug into the archives, I was astonished to learn that Murray, a Black-identified woman from the South, had in the 1940s written a paper that would become part of Thurgood Marshall's blueprint for dismantling legal segregation in Brown versus Board of Education— I also learned that Polly coined the term Jane Crow to describe the web of pervasive laws that enshrine gender discrimination on the ground that doing so was necessary for women's protection. Ruth Bader Ginsburg would later build on this work in litigating constitutional protections for sex discrimination. And long before the term intersectionality was in vogue, Polly Murray bemoaned the way in which gender and race worked in tandem to limit opportunities for women of color. So this is all to say that Polly Murray was truly ahead of her time, so much so that she was never really credited or celebrated for the great work that she accomplished. So Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Melissa. Great to be here. And Betsy, we are so glad to have you and talk about this fantastic film. Happy to be here, Melissa. Thank you. 
first of all, Betsy, Julie, how did you learn about Polly and why did you decide that it was so important to tell her story? Well, we actually learned about Polly Murray from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. When we were doing the film, we discovered that RBG on her very first brief before the Supreme Court as a litigator in Reed v. Reed had put Polly's name on the cover, really to credit Polly with the ideas that you mentioned in that article about Jane Crow and using the 14th Amendment to win equal rights for women. So we're just like, that was interesting. Uh, and after the film came out, we started to look into the history and then discovered some of the things that you discovered. What an extraordinary person Polly Murray was, how ahead of the times Polly was, and really how unrecognized. This is someone we just thought, wow, people need to know more about Polly. Not only a very ahead of the time legal thinker, but also an ahead of the curve activist getting arrested for sitting in the quote unquote white section of a bus in 1940, 15 years before Rosa Parks' arrest, also helping organize while a law student at Howard University lunch counter sit-ins that successfully desegregated two restaurants in uh, then segregated Washington, D.C. in 1943, so 17 years before the more famous Woolworth lunch counter sit-in. So like just on thing after thing, here's this amazing leader and thinker that is not someone that most Americans read about in the history books. And I guess it felt like not only an amazing story, but maybe like a little bit of a, of a challenge. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an extremely well-known name. In this case, it's kind of a step further because most Americans haven't heard the name. Well, I, it's, you know, I've been a lawyer, a state, local, federal prosecutor, and I've done some work in discrimination and investigations into things like sexual harassment, I had never heard of Polly Murray. And so one of the things I love so much about your film is that, of course, I know Plessy versus Ferguson, I know Reed versus Reed, and I know the work that's been done around the 14th Amendment. But seeing it through this different lens, just sort of like being introduced to it a different way, I loved it and was just captivated by it. And part of it is that we know part of the story, but it's like, all of a sudden you see that you actually don't know the whole story. And there's this incredible woman who's so far ahead. And like just one of the things that I I was transfixed by in trying to understand, and I don't know if the two of you have sort of an explanation or an understanding of it, but she really was 10 or 15 years ahead of so many things. And it seems like she actually was not just ahead, but laying the groundwork, whether it was with the ACLU pushing them to push Ruth Bader Ginsburg forward, whether it was with sit-ins, restaurant desegregation. I mean, there's so many, any one of those things would be a huge accomplishment. And yet there are all these things. And so I really, I actually can't believe I didn't know about her too. Yeah. I mean, one of the challenges for us when we first talked about doing a story about Polly Murray was how are we going to bring Polly's story to life? She died in 1985. And we were so lucky to the fact that Polly really had a sense of her own place in history and saved everything carrying around boxes with her, about 150 boxes at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard. And among that, in that archive, are audio tapes of interviews that Polly did later in life when Polly became an Episcopal priest. And there was interest in Polly for that reason. And there were a number of interviews done then 
And then Julie discovered rather serendipitously a videotape that had been uncatalogued and really wasn't actually part of the collection, but was there. And so that was a moment where we thought, wow, we can tell this story in Polly's voice, which was really important to us. As you say, it's a perspective that we just haven't seen before. There's such an interesting dichotomy with Polly Murray. At one point during the documentary, there is film footage or audio footage, rather, of her explaining that when she goes to Hunter College, which at that point in time is an all women's college, she feels incredible imposter syndrome. She doesn't know if she'll be able to hack it. And yet throughout her life, she has this incredible sense of her own legacy, so much so that she preserves all of these papers and has them archived at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard. She is laying down the foundation to dismantle gender discrimination, but she doesn't necessarily understand herself as a woman or doesn't always identify as a woman. And this to me, I think, is a complicated question. I mean, I have been calling her she and referring to her as a woman because That is how she is referred to in biographies and in all of the references by her contemporaries. But that may not be how she understood herself. Do we have a sense of how Polly identified what pronouns Polly would have assigned to herself? You know, it's one of those questions that's quite hard to get to because during Polly's lifetime, while people may have been, and Polly, Polly self, pursued at certain times medical help saying, you know, I think I'm a man. It wasn't a time where people who the world was seeing as women went by male pronouns. There were times in Polly's life where Polly did identify as a man and dress in male clothing in personal settings. And yet everyone that knew Polly knew Polly as a woman and she, her were the pronouns that were used about Polly in front of Polly throughout life. So it's difficult to say. That's why I'm sort of sticking to the can't be wrong, just like don't use a pronoun because calling Polly Polly is something that we know. And in fact, even Polly's name, Polly was born Anna Pauline Murray, uh, experimented with different names, including Paul at one point and including Pete at one point. As we mentioned in the film, there's a photo album of Polly's where Polly has written the dude underneath a a self-portrait. But um, Polly liked the name Polly, you know, without being able to communicate directly when someone has passed. Choosing the pronoun isn't something one can know, I think. One thing we can be sure of is that Polly was incredibly vexed by the prospect of boundaries and binaries. And Throughout Polly's work, one of the key issues was dismantling these boundaries. And one place that was especially pernicious was this question of the gender slash race intersection. So Polly is talking about what we call intersectionality, but Polly is doing it well ahead of a language for it. So can you talk a little bit about the episodes in Polly's life that perhaps gave her the most insight about how race and gender could coalesce to make things incredibly difficult? Yeah, I mean, I I think without a question, it was Polly's time at Howard Law School that really drove this home to her. She was the only woman in a very small class and immediately she was being questioned about why do women even bother to come to law school? Uh, One of her professors says there was going to be a legal fraternity. And she said she wanted to join. They said, well, you can't join that. You're a woman. You can have your own sorority. 
of one, you know, would have been Polly by herself. And she said, I was raised in a family of very strong women, raised by her two aunts, her grandmother and a grandfather. And they had a tradition of education. And she was really taken aback by this. And of course, she pushed through as she did whenever she met a challenge. She just dug in. And of course, she was at the top of her class. And then the next year, she was given the respect and they actually called on her in class. So this was, I think, the beginning of her recognition that as a Black woman, she faced a double discrimination, you know, not just having grown up, obviously, in uh, Jim Crow South. She understood racism and she understood that. And she began to understand sexism at Howard. She won the prize at the end of law school. Automatically, the top student would get a graduate fellowship to go to Harvard to get a master's in law at Harvard. And all the other Howard graduates preceding her had won this prize. And when she applied to Harvard, they said, oh, you know, we're terribly sorry, but uh, we don't accept women. So that was eye-opening for her as well. I think it's so profound when she talks in the movie about how she has this realization that both race and gender are arbitrary and that equality yeah. goes beyond that. Obviously, it's Polly's lived experience, but it's more than that. It's basically being able to put that through in a theoretical sort of construct. Right. One of the great tenets of feminism is that the personal is political. And I think you can really see that play out in Polly because so many personal life experiences inform intellectual ideas and then political activism. And I think Polly used the phrase feeling like a person in between. And that was true in gender because of non-binary feelings that went back to childhood. It was also true in race because Polly's family on both sides was a mix of black and white. Polly's biracial identity was actually pretty important to the way that Polly wrote about life. And so I think walking through the world feeling like I'm not fitting in any of the boxes that people <laughs> try to put people in had a huge influence. And we talk about often how people feel disadvantaged for being placed outside, but there's also an advantage. I mean, Polly could see a lot more things than many of us, just like having a life that put Polly in like lots of different perspectives that more fortunate Americans aren't fortunate enough to see. Can I ask a personal question too? The two of you have been making this movie. It takes a long time to make a film. In the midst of this, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd is killed. How does that impact the two of you and your work on the film? It had a huge impact on us and on the team that we were working with. When Black Lives Matter, when the whole thing just erupted and it, it felt like we were seeing a repeat of some of the things that we had learned about with Polly. At that time, we were working on the section about the riots in Detroit in 1943, in which the police beat up and murdered African-American men. And Polly wrote a very strong poem about this protesting the fact that FDR, who we see as the great progressive, really just did nothing about this. As she called it, he had a mealy-mouthed response to the murder of these African-American men. So it just felt that Polly's life story 
was so resonant at the time that we were experiencing the events in our own country. That's one of the really important aspects of the film, not simply in surfacing Polly as a figure that really hasn't been given the credit that is due, but also that there is this half of civil rights history that really hasn't been told. Like we may have heard of the Detroit riots from the 1960s, but we have not heard about the riots from the 1940s. There's this whole history of agitation that precedes the civil rights movement. You know, history is written by the victors, but what has not been told? And To me, it seemed that was such a potent lesson from this film, like to surface all of these stories that have never yet been told. Right. And all of these instances, you know, we talk about Polly being ahead of the times in terms of being 15 years before Rosa Parks to get arrested on a bus. But the truth is, when we went looking in the black press from the 40s and even the 30s and the 50s, like... (laughs) There are many, many episodes of Black people getting arrested on the white section of the bus, often with violence attached to that, often with jail terms. And they may have been secrets to the New York Times, but they were being covered pretty widely by the then very vibrant Black press, as Pauli Murray, Pauli's own self, was covered repeatedly for all kinds of accomplishments throughout life. Can you say a little bit about what it was like to do a film about someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and then someone like Polly Murray? And obviously the two share a lot of history. There are places where they are overlapping, but in many respects, their lives are incredibly different in terms of privilege, in terms of their reception in the broader community. What was it like to sort of have this period of time in which you are back to back thinking about these two really colossal figures? Well, it's true. Ruth Bader Ginsburg faced a lot of challenges in her life because of discrimination against her as a woman and and as a Jew. But she was very well educated and was able to push through and accomplish so much in her lifetime, first arguing the series of cases that she did and then going on to the Supreme Court and lived to see herself become a superstar, a pop icon, not only a legal giant, but somebody recognized. And you know, she got a kick out of it, actually. And we saw that. I think she appreciated her notoriety. And, you know, it's sad to think that Pauli Murray never had that kind of recognition. And we do think about it. I mean, Pauli had so many more disadvantages. I mean, she grew up on the edge of poverty, certainly. I mean, she had a a family that valued education, but she went to a horrible school. She had to actually repeat the last year of high school in order to be able to go to Hunter College. And then, as you said, she felt inadequate there. I mean, she had to just push and push and push becomes an accomplished lawyer, has trouble getting work. I mean, all her life she faced adversity. So it is It is kind of sad. And yet you sense when you see the video of her that was taken after she had become an Episcopal priest and you hear her talking, you see the smile and you feel her sense of self. And she feels to me like somebody who understands what she has accomplished and is happy about it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you've made the good good point that we were there to witness how much RBG enjoyed her late in life fame. Because after all, when when RBG was doing her big work in the seventies, wasn't getting a whole lot of press either. Like we looked for clips of there, and like her, her name wasn't in them. But of course, by the time she's writing her stinging descents, like she becomes notorious RBG. She she really loved that. I think Polly, who in some points in life was purposely laying a bit low so that it wouldn't be discovered that Polly's life partner at that point was a woman and some concerns regarding gender binary issues that there was no language for at the time. And yet when we listen to Polly's voice in the many recordings that are in the archives and a, a, a substantial amount make up really the, the backbone of the film, this is someone who really wants their voice to be heard. When you listen to Polly's voice, it just sounds like Polly is talking to you. And I think that that's true. I mean, I'm going to be really curious to see once our audience broadens out. But certainly, I think on the filmmaking team, it kind of feels like Polly's trying to <laughs> Polly's trying to talk to me, like Polly wants to be heard. One of the things I was pretty remarkable, and, and you're both touching on it a little bit, was I love the way that you used Polly's poetry throughout the film to sort of bring up parts of her life and parts of her struggle. It was this fascinating question to me at the end when she becomes an Episcopalian priest that it feels in some ways like she struggled to sort of find her voice or not to find it, but to have it expressed and to be able to sort of be able to speak in a broad way and first through just poetry and then law. And then law is not enough in some ways. She goes to this next level to religion and, and you see her preaching at the pulpit where there's incredible power and authority and just voice in that. And so I, I don't know, it just felt to me like maybe it was one of the fundamental pieces of her was this desire to sort of be heard. And to transcend boundaries in being heard, like nothing could... Yes hold Polly in. She talked about how she was a poet turned lawyer. And the poetry was so much a part of her. She was writing these poems from a very early age about her experience. And they became a more important part of the film, actually, than we had initially thought they might be, frankly, because they illustrated, gave you a moment to consider whatever story is being told, whether or not it's, you know, trying to find work in the depression, dealing with the heartache that Polly dealt with early on in life, political poems, tough poems. It just gave us a moment to really consider this person because she wasn't just a lawyer or an activist. She was, she was a lot more than yeah, that. Polly actually said, given Polly's druthers, being a poet and a writer would have been the key career choice. And activism, sometimes you have to be an activist if you're trying to make a change that's impacting your own life. And like law, like that seemed like, okay, maybe that's the next step in trying to break down some of the barriers that need breaking. Polly had an unbelievable gift for writing and got published in the 50s for the amazing family memoir, Proud Shoes. Polly's tenacity, her persistence, such a model in these really difficult times. This is an amazing film. You have done everyone such a service to bring this remarkable person to life in such an incredible way. So Julie and Betsy, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this amazing film with us. My name is Polly Murray, just premiered at Sundance and will soon be in wider distribution. Make sure you check it out in your area. It'll probably be on Netflix or some other streaming platform. So look for it. 
Talking Feds Women at the Table is produced by Harry Lippman and Jennifer Bassett. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Production assistance is by Matt McCardle. Our audio engineer is Justin Wright from Seaplane Armada. As always, thank you to the amazing Philip Glass for allowing us to use his music. Talking Feds Women at the Table is a production of Delito LLC. Looking forward to next time. <laughs>